0: My name is Dustin. I'm one of our elders here at Santa Cruz Baptist. And it's my privilege to take us through our sermon today. We're going to be continuing on in the book of Mark. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible, um, there's one in front of you. And it would be on page page 492. uh, But we're going to be in Mark 9, verses 38 through 50. So in the seventh grade, my friend... Bobby and I, we would carpool to school together. On one occasion, one of us had managed to get our hands on a bag of habanero peppers. We didn't know how hot they actually were. And if any of you have had a habanero pepper, you know that it's not the hottest of the peppers, but it's pretty dang hot. So as we're daring one another who would eat it, I lucked out because Bobby volunteered and went ahead and ate the entire pepper in one whole bite. Immediate, deep regret ensued. Bobby went into a state of panic, red face, sweating profusely, and by the end of the car ride, he had to eat his entire lunch to try and stop the heat. He was sent home from school sick that day, regretting the horrible decision, If only he had been better warned. So in our text this morning, as we've been touring the book of Mark and discovering who is Jesus, today we'll see Jesus give the disciples some of the strongest warnings seen in scripture for what I'm titling as the true Christian battle. And that battle is the battle of our sin, we'll come to see. We'll see that in our text, while in our Christian walk, There may be other people or things out there competing for our attention and our focus, but often we're at war with the wrong things. If we don't listen and take warnings, the precautions seriously, it may be possible you or I are on a destructive path, potentially letting unrecognized sin lead to destruction and ruin and all. So Mark 9, verses 38 through 50. And we'll start there in 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter life, enter the kingdom of God with one eye, than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, as we begin surveying this text, we recall that we're in a point in the book of Mark where he's specifically focusing on discipleship. We saw Jesus rid a boy from an unclean spirit that the disciples were unable to help, pressing the disciples to be faithful in prayer and not reliant on themselves. We saw Jesus correct the disciples on who they thought would be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus taught them, be a servant of the lowly. Don't seek your own status. So the disciples here throughout this section continue to get this major overhaul and understanding how God's kingdom actually operates. What are the mechanics of it? So as we pick up in verse 38, we encounter the disciple John reporting to Jesus that someone was casting out demons in Jesus' name, and the disciples didn't like it. Here, Jesus, I believe, is going to show us how our general disposition ought to be towards other Christ followers. But first, let's know, who is this other person? Who's out there trying to cast demons, not among the 12 chosen disciples? Maybe someone who had heard of Jesus in this crazy kingdom power. Maybe he was well-intentioned, just out there wanting to help people. We don't truly really know, the text doesn't tell us, but we know the disciples didn't like it because he was not following us. So let's think for a moment. Why are they upset? Demon exorcism should be a good thing. Work done in Jesus' name should be a good thing. But he was not with us. If you or I were in the disciples' shoes, we would have remembered just recently the transfiguration. We saw Moses, Elijah. We saw Jesus transformed into a majestic state. We heard the voice of God booming out of the sky. I imagine they must have felt pretty special and significant to encounter such an event. We must be the true followers, the greatest, as they thought thereafter. We also can't forget the disciples' recent failings, though. Not only did they fail in helping the young boy but they got rebuked by jesus publicly perhaps they felt shame so we can imagine as john still growing in his discipleship was still missing something not seeing the bigger picture of what was being accomplished for the kingdom that brings us to our point one supporting god's kingdom workers so John here sees someone not part of the team, someone who is outside of the us, the greatest, and then this seemingly well-intentioned person now attempting to do what they had failed to do, and thus jealousy and perhaps pride leads him to stop a work being done. A person whom Jesus had full intentions of using for his ministry. And here we must pause and examine what we are not to be battling in our Christian life. Jesus commands him in verse 39, Do not stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will soon after be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Do not hinder the gospel witness of others, even if they don't look like us or fall into our group. You know, when I first read this, I thought to myself, no way this passage applies to me. I'm not out there trying to stop people from demon exorcism. But the more I meditate and sit under God's word, it hits me. Do I embrace Christians outside of my comfortable circle? How do I speak of other believers when they're not in my midst? Do I think what's going on in my circle, the Santa Cruz Baptist circle, or even a circle within Santa Cruz Baptist as more significant or better than another group? Do I gossip? Do I talk or think down on someone with a different theological lean than me? Maybe more or less progressive, charismatic, reformed, egalitarian, fill in the blank. How do I speak of others or other gospel proclaiming churches that maybe don't align with me on things? May not intentionally stop them overtly. But do I pray for them and do I desire to see their ministry succeed? I grew up in a small church in a small town. I know how church talk can go constant comparing, critiquing what we did like, what we didn't like, what we thought should have been done better. Now I realize. There are Christians or pastors or churches we've been to who have said and done wrong things. Maybe they've even burned you. Maybe you left a group of believers for a good reason, and that's okay. It's okay to leave other believers. Disagreements happen. We see Paul leave Barnabas in Acts 15 over a disagreement with John Mark, the writer of this book. They split and went different ways, but... How we choose to respond afterward to those is telling of everything in our obedience to Jesus. So Christian, the true battle we're called to fight is much closer to you than you think. It's not the guy over there in another camp. It's in you. We're far too prone to negativity, murmuring, gossip, criticalness. Being a critic is easy. Loving someone who's burned you is not. But let it not be so, for the one who is not against us is for us. Let us, as Ephesians 4.2 says, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We see Paul speak more on this in Philippians 1.15-18. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill, the latter out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul here had others who were gospel proclaimers personally afflicting him in their public witness, and he's rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed. So don't hear from that, that we're supposed to just support every church. There's churches that teach false gospels. Anyone who would teach something other than Christ's free gift of salvation by grace through faith and repenting and believing is not church we support. But as we keep moving on, what we see in this text is how much Christ actually desires for us to be supporting other believers and not in opposition. Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. How amazing is that? The battle is not to be out hindering people seeking to follow Christ, but actually the opposite. We're called to be the supporters of others. And note with me the insane amount of recognition he gives to what is just so seemingly easy and simple. A small cup of water for someone who belongs to Christ. In support of the gospel, he rewards it. I realize it's probably easier for us to get water than it was for them compared to now. But notice that what he rewards is what is basic. It's easy. And if Christ rewards what is basic, how much more ought we to want to give everything to support others? Just think of how he'll respond with the giving of our lives. But... If we, review, if we view our support as burdensome, whether it's our finances, our time, the stuff he's placed in our hands, if that's a burden to us, we're missing out on what God seeks and desires to reward. Ephesians 2, 8-10 reads this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the point of our salvation, to go live out good works created for us before the foundation. This is how we obtain a joyful, purposeful life, is living out Ephesians 2. We can take this to an even deeper level. What was read in our text this morning is when we do such things for the kingdom of God, when we do works, we're actually doing those things unto Christ. Back to Matthew 25 37 through 39. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you in sick? Or in prison and visit you. And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of my brothers, you did it unto me. Meeting basic needs for those around us, Christ will see as works done unto him. It's wonderful. I've seen that done so much here, and I love it few months ago, so many of you have blessed me. Just a couple weeks ago, seeing the sweatbirds get served as they're trying to move into their house. Let us be eager for doing such things. Open hands, ready to give, knowing that we're doing it unto Christ. So as we've touched on support, the text now leads us to the opposite. What we're not to be doing. Our point two here, warnings for Christ's disciples. Verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. sobering. These little ones, or better titled, these who are little or lowly in the world's eyes, children, new Christians, whoever in between, who have come to Christ in faith, to lead one of these into a purposeful sin is proclaimed as one of the worst possible things you or I could do. It's better off if we just didn't even exist, is the picture we're painting. And notice in verse 42, he doesn't define what the type of sin is a generalization he gives us. It would be so great if he told us the specifics so we could avoid such a terrible, scary type of punishment. But there's far too numerous of paths and avenues of sin to mention. So instead of questioning specifics, we must rather be purposeful in seeking the growth and Christ-likeness of those who are new or younger in their faith. And this is what it means to be a disciple maker. To care for, protect others from sin, and be leading others to imitate Christ. Can this be said of you as a disciple, as a disciple who makes disciples? The millstone in our text here that we speak of is not a small hand millstone Think industrial-grade stone, a great millstone, the text says. Hundreds of pounds, so big a donkey would have to pull the thing in a circle as it pounded grain into flour or olives into oil, over and over. Now Christ graphically helps us to imagine tying that around someone's neck, throwing them in the ocean, if they're intentionally leading others into sin. That's not what's frightening to me when I read that, going out mafia style. What's frightening is, that's the better option, the text says. How God will handle those who harm his beloved lowly ones is unimaginably, unimaginably bad. Don't take sin lightly. Be at war with it. Paul was concerned with this in Corinthians 8, 9 through 13 He says this. Take care that this right of yours, this was the right to eat food that had been offered to idols, which was something searing the conscience of newer believers. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, the lowly. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. So, just as our support is unto Christ, our leading others. To sin is a sin against Christ. Paul's willing to be a vegetarian to help prevent the sin of what? A wounded conscience in someone. Something that wasn't even technically wrong. That's crazy. Our aim as disciple makers should be doing whatever necessary to prevent sin or stumbling blocks for people's faith. Coming back to our text, I want you to note with me here, on one hand, Christ's severity in his disposition against sin. But if we look, we can also extract his great love for his beloved ones. Think about it. The measure by which God punishes sin is the measure by which he cares and loves for what is good and what's valuable to him. We see this actually play out in our everyday lives. You take, for instance, offenders in prison who have victimized women or children. They often have to be put in a different area from the other prisoners because the cruel punishment they'll get from the other prisoners will kill them. Even wicked people seek for justice and retribution when when they see harm done to those who ought to be loved and cherished and protected. So... When we read of the terrible millstone, instead of reactionary accusation against a cruel, seemingly God, we should see the seriousness of sin, but also the great measure of love for God's children. He will not let sins against them go unpunished. And you are his loved ones if you've turned to him in faith. And here is where the gospel hits us. For Christ's beloved ones, the ones which he died, the same punishment that God pours out against that type of sin, millstone punishment, is the same punishment he endured for us, that we could be reconciled from our great debt of sin. Jesus endured the great millstone as he was crucified, to save his people. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So while we're reminded and see this great comfort in Christ, as we continue moving on in this text, we still see more warnings and cautions. He now turns our attention from causing others to sin, now to the relationship with our own sin. So here is your battle. It's not the guy out there who's not in your camp that you don't agree with. It's actually in you. Verse 43 through 48. I'll paraphrase this. If your hand, if your foot, if your eye, or any member of your body causes you to sin, we try harder next time? No. Justify it, no. Make an excuse, blame someone else, no. He says, cut it off. Tear it out. It's better to enter life crippled in the kingdom of God than to have your sin and to be thrown into hell. We're right to assume Jesus was not speaking to us in the literal with his strong language. The simple removal of an organ would be insufficient in preventing our other members to sin. But please don't diminish his stern warning just because it's figurative speech. In each of these verses, we know a repetition of the phrases. This is a simple tool to just help us not miss the point. In other words, don't gloss this section of the text over. The disciples would have understood the hell, we read here, as a literal place outside their city, the Valley of Hinnom, basically the local garbage dump site. The worm does not die. The fire is not quenched, which was quoted from Isaiah 66:24. 24. The worm doesn't die because of the large supply to feed from and the fire continually burns from what is constantly thrown out and away from the city I honestly don't know what to make of what actual hell looks like. It's a very hard topic. Worms, fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth, lake of fire we see in other parts of the text. I don't know if those are literal, but it's awful. I hate to even think about it, but the picture is painted clear for the disciples. If we hold and cling to our sins, the sin God hates for but is paid for in Christ, we will stand as enemies of God, only to be removed out of his good city, away from where his goodness resides, where his mercy reigns, where he will eternally bless his worshipers who have turned to him. C.S. Lewis famously penned in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end thy will be done. All that are in hell are there because they have chosen it and what I believe Lewis is getting at there is if we're staying content with our sin we make it clear we don't even want God. We don't want to be with him. So in this strong warning we can't Neglect or delay dealing with our sin. It's your and my responsibility. Those who have received Christ's mercy to not do so in vain. Christ does not accept our excuses for our sin. Tear it out, cut it out, kill it, he said. It's not an outside influencer on you, although that's true. There's a lot of sin out there, but it's part of your actual members, Jesus says. You are responsible for you. Your hand, your foot, your eye, out of your heart comes what's evil, Matthew 15, 19. We cannot continue in our sin, and if we do, it only reveals we may have truly never Known Jesus. 1 John 3 6. In fact, I'd encourage you to read the whole book of 1 John on this topic. But 1 John 3 6 says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Cross bearing disciples who abide in Jesus will be at war with their sin. Whatever that it is that besets you. A device, a phone, computer, Netflix account, maybe. Substance, a food perhaps, a place, maybe a relationship. Whatever it may be you're stuck in, if we don't fight it, it will lead to death. James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived Gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Staying in your sin can only lead to destruction, but you are not stuck. You can have victory over your sin. And what God has in store for you in his kingdom is far better than whatever sin you still cling to. So do you struggle with sin? Struggling is good. It's our starting point. It's seeing it for what it is so we can actually fight it and begin to conquer. Take action against it, Jesus is telling us here. It's not worth the dangers of hell. He wants us to be free, walking in holiness, fully pleasing to God. And He encourages us to do this together. As followers of Christ with the Holy Spirit, we're called to walk in this together. This is the point of discipleship or DNA groups we encourage here intentionally fighting sin together. I can assure you, just having another person you're accountable with will put you on a closer walk towards holiness. We're not called to cowboy Christianity. And if you wrestle, with the concept of hell, I tell you, it's okay to feel that way. You're in good company. I wrestle with it. Many, many theologians and amazing Christians all wrestle with it. But it's far better to wrestle with it than to just dismiss it altogether. Have no fear of God, no fear of any consequences of sin. It's uncomfortable. And while we don't want people to follow Jesus out of just fear, In preaching hell, we also can't just shrink away and dismiss the topic altogether. Jesus spoke of it often, and he emphatically warned his disciples of it. If we have true love and concern, then we won't dismiss it. Listen to what Spurgeon says on the topic. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell Over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let us in love let none go unwarned and unprayed for. As we come to a close on this section, what I love is that the scripture, we're not just left with don'ts and fears of hell, but we're left with a different type of fire to embrace. Fire language, if you recall from our previous Daniel series, fire is used in two ways. It's usually used for judgment, like we just read, but it's also used for refinement, purification. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We see here that fire and trials will be the mechanism used to make Christ followers his salt in the world. It will season us as his children Set apart for good works, making God's kingdom richer in flavor. So we embrace through our obedience to Jesus, fighting our sin, a life pursuit that results in refinement and salted lives. We're called to bless, pray, support our Christian brothers and sisters, even the ones not in your camp and live a lifestyle that brings flavor and preservation to a dark world. As God's children in his kingdom, be at peace with one another, but be at war with your sin. For if we continue in sin, how will you be made salty again, the text says. Let us pray.